If you'll open your copy of the scripture, Matthew chapter 17 is where we find ourselves again this Sunday. As you know, we've been working our way through the gospel of Matthew's sequential exposition of uh, the first gospel in our English uh, Bible, uh, Matthew 17, and we will uh, focus our attention on verse 14 down through verse 20 for our uh, study of this morning. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. I'm uh, entitling uh, these verses from which to exposit God's word to us, mountain-moving faith. As believers, we engage in ministry to others. Sometimes it is one-to-one, as in the one-anothers. We counsel, we admonish, we encourage, we edify. At other times, we use our spiritual gift with the objective of edifying a greater portion of the church. As we minister, we must not make the mistake of depending on ourselves. We must not we must refrain from the temptation to rely on our inherent abilities, our knowledge, our wisdom, our spiritual giftedness. We must trust solely in the Lord to minister effectively. Scripture routinely counsels believers to trust in the Lord. One example of this is found in Psalm 115, verses 9 through 11. You don't have to turn there, just listen as I recite the text. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You see the theme there? We trust, he helps. We depend on him. He supplies power, he supplies protection, he is a shield, he provides blessing. Whatever is needed, he is the one who gives it to us. Our passage records an occasion when the disciples failed to depend on the Lord. They failed to trust in him. The result was an epic and embarrassing failure in ministry. The occasion was a family crisis. 
a crisis that could not be resolved except by divine intervention. Disciples, the nine who remained, while Jesus and the other three were on the Mount of Transfiguration, had an opportunity to be God's instruments. They were positioned to be used by him to bring glory to him by resolving an issue that only he could fix. From the narrative, as we study it, as we look at it, we can learn some things for our own personal ministry and for our ministry in our church. First thing we want to see, and I'm going to give it a heading for the first three verses and the verses that are under consideration this morning. This heading is a desperate plea. What I read you a moment ago is quite evident in the first couple of verses. A despairing and desperate father approached Jesus as he, Peter, James, and John were returning from the transfiguration event on Mount Hermon. That glorious event that those inner circle disciples had witnessed, they were coming down now with Jesus into the valley, back to where people lived and their sorrows and their hurts and their pains and their needs. And this man, as he approached Jesus in verse 14, you can see what he does. He, he fell on his knees before him. This signifies his humility. It indicates his reverence before the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he utters his plea in verse 15. Lord, have mercy on my son. His plea First, let me let you know, he, it indicated his belief that our Lord could alter the boy's condition. Somehow he knew of Jesus' power. Perhaps he had heard about it, maybe had been told by neighbors. Perhaps he had seen it exhibited in the healing of others. But he knew that Jesus had the power to fix his boy. We know from Mark's gospel, he had faith, albeit weak faith. Because he says in Mark's gospel, the record is in Mark 9, 24, I do believe, help my unbelief. He believed, but yet his faith was imperfect. And he said, Lord, help me. I, I, I believe you can do it, but please help me believe. By the way, that's a good thing to do. When, when you recognize your faith is weak, you say, Lord, help me. I believe, that's why I'm asking you, help me with my weak faith. I know he'll help you. He'll strengthen your faith because he does want us to trust him. He does want us to rely upon him. And so it's always a good thing to say, Lord, be humble and acknowledge, Lord, I'm not all I ought to be in faith, so help me, would you? Now, he called him Lord. We don't know how much he knew about Jesus. We can't really determine by the use of the word Lord that it could be translated sir. But apparently it's obvious, I think, that he knew enough to believe that Jesus could deliver his son. He understood that Jesus could change the situation. And this is really remarkable because, after all, his faith wasn't helped by Jesus' disciples. Remember her? They couldn't do it, and so that make you wonder, well, I don't know if this thing... That's why he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. But despite the disciples' failure, he said, have mercy on my son. 
mercy on my son, mercy, sympathy, and compassion. And he, he wasn't just having an attitude. He's not saying just have an attitude of mercy. What he is saying, respond, if you will, in meeting my son's need. You notice what he says about him. He's a lunatic. I need to explain that. People say that today about somebody who's a lunatic. Lunatic, literally, the word um, in the Greek refers to something related to the moon. Based on an ancient belief that madness, that mental illness, was a result of the moon. May I suggest to you that ain't so. <laughs> now, the moon affects the gravitation of our earth, the, the, the tides and all that, but it doesn't make you mentally ill. That's a sin problem. We're fallen people, and so we come here with disorders of all sorts, physical and mental. But really what it is, it's leprosy. Leprosy is the idea. We've come to understand that. Leprosy, um, no, I didn't. Did I say leprosy? Scratch that. <laughs> Epilepsy is what I meant to say. <laughs> Goodness sakes. Miss one Sunday and I'm off. <laughs> Epilepsy. That, that, that's what it is. A nervous disorder. This probably was a result of the abuse of the demon. It was a demon. You see in verse 18 there, and Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him. So this affliction there. And he's very ill. This boy is in desperate condition, and the father is desperate. And notice he further describes the result of it. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Fire here refers to um, that which was commonly used for cooking and heating. Alternatively, the boy would fall into the water, such as wells and pools. Demon was behind this. The demon's intention was to kill this boy. And with all this going on, you could just imagine the stress in the family. The stress on this father as he struggled to keep the demon from killing his son. Can you imagine every day having to deal with that? And he's been dealing with it for years because in Mark's gospel, Jesus asked him, how long has this been going on? He said, from childhood. So this has been a long period of time. demon sought to kill him. Ultimately, it was God who preserved the boy's life. You see, the encounter with Jesus on this occasion was designed to bring glory to the Son of God. That glory is because he would be able to display his power over the powers of darkness. And the afflictions, indeed, all of them, when Jesus healed people from physical maladies, when he exercised demons, all that he did was a display of his glory, his power, pointing to who he is. 
the God on earth, the Messiah, the king. He is the king and his kingdom rules over everything, even demonic forces. In John chapter 9, 1 through 3, that was the situation with this man who was born blind. It wasn't because his parents sinned. It wasn't because he did anything. It was that the glory of God may be displayed. Now, we just see here in verse 15 the demons behind that, but there's other abuse as well. In Mark chapter 9, the parallel account lets us know this. Mark chapter 9, verse 17, it, it says there that this spirit made him mute. The boy couldn't speak. He couldn't tell his father anything about his suffering. This demon, the spirit, as Mark calls him, induced this. But not only that, the abusiveness of this evil spirit, verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. Think about that. Living with a situation like this. You probably wonder, why? Why would such a thing go on in the world? Here's why. One of the facts of living in a sin-cursed, fallen world is being subject to evil, even from demonic realm. Do understand, you know this if you remind us. Believers cannot be possessed by demons, but they can be attacked by them. That's why Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 is there. There are temptations to evil, discouragement. All manner of things come from us, from Satan and his demonic hosts. The goal is to weaken us as believers, weaken us as a church, and so they want to attack us when we want to do the things that glorify and honor God and promote the kingdom of Christ. Do you not think the devil wants to do something against us? That is why we must don the whole armor of God so that we might stand. We might stand in the evil day. You say, when is the evil day? Right now. It's been an evil day since Adam and Eve fell. It's been evil. Just look around our world. You see all the stuff that goes on? Here, let me just throw something in here. Uh, since we're talking about evil, the reason the world isn't worse is because God restrains it. He restrains evil. Praise his holy name. Amen. Another thing toward believers we need to keep in mind, Satan wants to lead us astray from simple devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he does it through false teaching and false teachers. We're to be devoted to the totality of our beings to Christ. And Satan says, I can't buy that. So come along with some false teachings, some error, some lies to get us off the truth and devotion to Christ. He'll come along with teaching that tells you, you know, God, Jesus Christ died so you could be wealthy. That's 
There's a Greek word for that. B-U-N-K, bunk. <laughs> you didn't die for that. Now, regarding the evil spirits and the unbelievers, they engage in harming them. They especially, particularly Satan, likes to blind the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4. That's his aim. He blinds people to the truth. He doesn't want them to understand the gospel because he wants to see them condemned to eternal hell. That's how serious this is. In this case, this boy. Demonic activity elevated with Jesus' uh, earthly ministry. They, would, they came out in the open and they were harming people. It's an attack on Christ and his kingdom. Wonderfully, though, uh, they were also under the sovereign control of Christ who used him to display his glory. Isn't that wonderful? They come with all their evil intentions, all their malice, all that they do, but yet Christ says, guess what? I got this, as people say. Now, the man that told Jesus, here, you notice something in verse 16, I brought them, brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. My goodness. These disciples failed. The nine who were left there in the valley. First, let me let you know they had the authority to do it because Jesus had bequeathed it to them and he hadn't rescinded Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. He gave them the authority to heal sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons. Disciples tried to expel the demon. They exercised their ministry as before. And let this be a lesson to us. They said, yes, we've been given this authority. Here this man comes. My son is demon-possessed. Would y'all expel him? And they failed. They were acting in concert with the will of God, but they failed. They had the authority to do it, but they failed. Keep that in mind. As we think about ministry, as you think about ministry, you can be authorized to do a certain thing. You can have, be in concert with the will of God, but yet fail in your ministry. In fact, past success does not guarantee present effectiveness. The disciples had been successful before in exercising demons. Mark chapter 6, verse 13 tells us this. They had done it before. But in this moment with this man, in this situation, this boy who was under the harm of this demon, they utterly, abjectly failed. That's why he came to Jesus with a desperate plea after he told Jesus your disciples couldn't do it our next heading is a denunciation 
hear our Lord's words. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Let's just stop there to come. Here is Jesus denouncing uh, the crowd for its unbelief. The unbelief and uh, perversion uh, that characterized Israel. Primarily, however, Jesus' remarks were directed to his disciples. Perverted? No doubt. Uh, in the crowd, there were some perverted people, morally. But perverted here refers to spiritual perversion. That is the offering of unbelief. What I mean by that is this. When people do not believe God, there is a twisting or distortion of who God is and his will. Let me state it differently. A person who does not have genuine trust in the Lord cannot escape having a distorted view of him. When you have a perverted, twisted idea about God, you will not see him as he really is, nor understand his will. May I give you an illustration? Okay. Would you go with me briefly? Numbers chapter 14. You know the story about Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Numbers 14. They came out under the mighty power of God as he uh, ten plagues under uh, the superpower of the time, Egypt, and just decimated that nation and freed his people. God had promised all the way back to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be yours. Your descendants going to get it. And they were poised. They get there and they send spies in the land to check it out, see what it's like, and the inhabitants, and all of that. And it came back, these 12 spies, uh, there was a minority, a majority report said, I can't do it. We can't go there because we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And the congregation wept and said, oh my goodness. Numbers 14, I guess you're all there now. Let's just look at verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and peop the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? That verse is one I want you to get. Verse 3. This is utter perversion. Yahweh, the Lord, did not deliver them from Egypt only to kill them in the desert. That's a distortion that's twisting who God is and what his will is. It's an evil view of Yahweh. It's unbelief. Unbelief. It was neither in keeping with God's nature nor his will. 
they die out there. Neither was it in keeping with his nature nor his will that the demon-possessed boy remain in that condition. That's what I want to get across. That's what unbelief does. It'll twist your view of God and make you think about God in ways that are wrong, that are unbiblical, that are inconsistent with his self-revelation. It's what unbelief will do for people. Now in verse 17, back in our text, Jesus goes on to say, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? (laughs) These two rhetorical questions by our Lord reveal his exasperation with them because of their unbelief. It was painful to him. Let us take this to heart. Did you get that? Let us take this to heart. Uh, When we have that kind of attitude, it's painful to Christ. Further, Jesus is saying here, when he says, how long shall I be with you? He's speaking of his heavenly origin. He came down from heaven where he eternally preexisted. And he's talking also about his return to heaven after he's completed his mission of redemption. He was anticipating his return to heaven in the presence of the Father. So we have a desperate plea a denunciation from Jesus over the unfaithfulness, unbelief of the people and particularly the disciples. And then we have, notice in the verse 17, bring him here to me. That begins a deliverance, our next heading. They bring the boy to Jesus, or the father does. In verse 18, and Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Let me uh, tell you a thing or two about rebuke. Rebuke here is a divine rebuke. A divine rebuke is an irresistible force. It is not simply a spoken word. For example, Psalm 106 verse 9 says this, He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. An irresistible force. Whenever God speaks, things happen. Things don't stay the same. Nahum chapter 1 verse 4 says, He rebuked the sea and makes it dry. The power of His word. That's not surprising because after all, the only reason all this is here that we see ourselves is because God spoke. And so He rebuked the demon and the demon was powerless to resist the word of incarnate deity. He had to go. He had to vacate the premises. Paris in town. With an eviction notice. (laughs) You're out of here, guy. On his way out of the boy, however, the demon threw the child into a convulsion. Spurgeon said it was one last throw. This conversion, convulsion, I was recorded in Mark chapter 9, verse 26. The boy was cured at once. 
It didn't take long. He regained his ability to speak, and the demon was permanently barred from reentering the child. Mark chapter 9, verse 25. And I'm going to show you another miracle. It can be overlooked. I'm glad it, it was revealed to me. If you will look in Mark chapter 9, I think it is. Mark chapter 9. I told you about the throw, did I not? Verse 26 of Mark 9. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But notice verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. And he got up. The boy did. You know what happened here? This is a miracle. Jesus infused strength and help into this boy who had been traumatized and horribly hurt by a demon. And with touching him, strength and help came to him. And the text says, and he got up. You know why he was able to get up? Because Jesus gave him the strength to get up. The demon knocked him down. Jesus said, no problem. Get up. That's a miracle. The miracle of the exorcism of the demon and then infusing strength in this boy's body. Glorious reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, final heading, a diagnosis. Back in our main text, you see it, verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? Seeing Jesus' effectiveness and knowing keenly their failure, disciples were at a loss as to why they could not drive out the demon. In that, that word, we, there, in the original, is, in, is emphatic. Why could not we drive it out? It's mentioned earlier in this little message, I told you that they had been successful previously. But now Jesus in verse 20 gives us the spiritual diagnosis why they failed. You notice, because of the littleness of your faith. They were not strangers to the, this condition. It was symptomatic of their discipleship. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, Matthew chapter 14, 31, Matthew chapter 16, 8, those four other occasions when Jesus said they are little faith. Littleness of faith is not the quantity or amount of faith. Since Jesus says immediately, if you have faith, the size of a mustard seed, proverbial for smallness. Well, then what was it? Their faith was deficient. That is the kind of faith that is ineffective. You see, notice what our Lord says um, here. Uh, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. 
with faith the size of mustard seed, they could move this mountain. Jesus probably said this mountain, Mount, pointing at Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet high. He said, this mountain, if you have faith with mustard seed, you can move it. Now you say, oh, did Jesus mean I actually go, can go move a mountain? Thank God that's not what he meant, because some of y'all must have some faith to do some mountain moving stuff. And no, 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 no. He's not talking about a literal mountain being moved. He's not talking about rearranging the topography of Israel. The rabbis taught that a greater teacher who could explain and resolve any great difficulty was known as an uprooter or pulverizer of mountains. That's why Jesus said, because they all knew about that. Mountain was a great difficulty. Exercising a demon is a great difficulty. In ministry, there will be great difficulties. But if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, the object is God. You're trusting Him. It can be moved. The demon could have been exercised. Could have said to the demon, come out. And it would have come out. Nothing will be impossible for you. Oh, let me explain. Nothing is impossible for you. Eh, context. Limitation. This is not a statement of uh, complete freedom to act as you wish. The limitation is the will of God. What else is involved in deficient faith? Mark chapter 9, if you will, the parallel account. Turn there with me and I'm going to get into a conclusion here. Mark 9, verse 29. And down by anything but prayer. The deficiency in their faith was a failure to pray. They had approached the challenge of exercising the demon uh, mechanically. Here's what could happen you could have success in ministry previously and take it for granted that since you've already had success, you can go ahead and just do it without really having to trust God. You can say, I can just depend on myself. You don't articulate that. You don't think that, but that's how we act when we think I can do it without trusting him. Spiritual results cannot happen apart from dependence upon the Lord. When you think you can do it on your own, God says, fine. I'll just watch you do it. And then there will be chagrin on your face. I recall an instance in the early years of the Billy Graham's ministry. He told a story about it. You know, Billy Graham, every time he preached, God's, he was a gifted evangelist, and God's brought people, and many of them were saved, no doubt. On one occasion, Mr. Graham gave the invitation, and nobody came. Can you imagine that? They recognize we've got a problem. 
and spiritual. They went back and they uh, dealt with it. That's the issue. You've got to trust God. Be his will. He's authorized it. You've got to depend on him. Believing prayer is an expression of faith in the Lord. And I say believing prayer, not just saying, Lord, uttering the words or thinking in your mind, but you're not really sure it's going to happen. You're not so sure. You've got to believe him. And God knows. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. Somebody said this, and I'll close with it. Dependent prayer is the highway that faith takes to the power of God. Dependent prayer is the highway that faith takes to the power of God. May we be like that. And whatever difficulty comes, we can see God work through us to solve it. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the word of the living God. Your word instructs us, counsels us, rebukes us, deepens us. All the things that you accomplish through your word in the life of those who believe. Thank you for this time of engagement with it. Spirit's illumination of it to our minds and hearts. May we find ourselves increasingly conformed to the truths that we learn. May we grow thereby. Be increasingly effective in service for you. We pray for any in this room this morning who needs Christ, that they will surrender themselves to him as Lord and Savior. We pray you do these things in the name of Christ. Amen.